The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening! You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 14, Episode 5. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing two tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Nicole Exposito. Tonight, we'll hear stories of unchained greed and possessive personalities. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first spine-tingling story. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors Turn your lights down low and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> the city. Some of us live there, some of us work there. 
And some of us would rather deal with what ancient beings lurk in the forest than take one step inside a pop-up restaurant. But for those who enjoy the hustle and bustle, the sense of cohesion and a nightlife not to be missed, there's nothing quite like it. But there are things to watch out for. You never know who's lurking down that steaming alley that's missing a light bulb or two. And of course, that hooded figure on the subway steps. Let's just hope that they're just cold and not hiding a face that would be less than human, shall we say? But sure, all kinds of places have their legends, and one place in particular harbors a particularly interesting one. Let's take a trip to a bar you'll have a hard time forgetting, courtesy of Nicole Exposito, and find out that the clientele aren't all drinking their sorrows away. Without further ado, I present to you the lawn jockey and the butterfly's wrist. Lately, I've spent all my spare time digging for information about the Angel City Racetrack. It's the newly purchased, newly updated horse racing venue that's supposed to reopen in Hollywood next month. It seems like a terrible investment. The sport of horse racing hasn't exactly been picking up new fans lately. In fact, everyone I talk to seems to think it's mildly, morally gross at best, or grotesquely abusive to animals at worst. Well, I think Angel City's going to make a ton of money, for an extremely short amount of time, before the place goes up in flames. And then I'm sure the network of shadowy conglomerates that funded the project secured a hefty insurance policy, so they'll profit even more off the wreckage. Don't take your family to the Angel City racetrack. Let me explain. All bartenders like to talk. Bartenders who work at theme parks and small clubs of Hollywood Boulevard like to talk especially about all the weird crap they've seen. And if you've ever been to Hollywood Boulevard on a Saturday night, you'd know weird crap is a very deep hole. I used to be one of them. I rimmed rock glasses with black salt and drizzled grenadine to look like blood at Kruger's and Myers a horror-themed nerd bar between Ivor and Coenga. I told myself when I got hired a week after college graduation that bartending at the K&M was a placeholder job, a gap year, a momentary band-aid while I studied for the LSAT and or applied to business school. But I liked the job. I liked the work and my co-workers, and I made a great amount of money. My professional life became an endless stream of costume parties, classic horror screenings, and scary movie trivia nights. In other words, my wildest childhood fantasy made real. Halloween every day. Next year, I'd promised my parents. Next year was the year I picked a real profession. Year N plus one to infinity. Monday nights, O'Rourke's Pub through industry nights, especially for the city bartenders and waiters and dancers and Uber drivers who hustled all weekend while the rest of the city partied. I used to attend with my clique of Hollywood Boulevard bartenders, drink Yamo and ginger, and 
talk about all the weird crap we'd seen that week. Around midnight, about the same time, we'd switched from mixed drinks to red breasts straight up. Our stories were veered from wacky tourist encounters toward the supernatural and unexplainable. We'd kick around local urban legends like the Gatsby Clown, supposedly young blonde thing with a bob and flapper dress used to pace up and down Hollywood Boulevard in flawless, intricately detailed clown makeup. Sightings of her occurred between three and five in the morning, after the bars closed and all but the bravest urban wanderers had found their way home. If you crossed paths with the Gatsby clown and you asked politely, she'd describe, in gross, grisly detail, your pending death. She wouldn't tell you when you'd die, though. But since those who spoke with her tended to go missing shortly afterward, I'd assume the answer to when was soon. There's also the one about the Beast of Coenga, a six-foot-long purple eight-legged cryptid that looks like a cross between a Gila monster and a cockroach leviathan, sighted in dumpsters on quiet nights. Or, if you like your bar stories good and bloody, there's the Vaca Verde Talco truck. It's said to be a front operation for an organ harvesting ring, which snatches lone drunks off side streets chops them up for parts and grinds the unsellable organs into taco meat. And then there were the legends about the butterfly's wrist. Those were different, because the butterfly's wrist was real. At first glance, the butterfly's wrist didn't warrant a second. It was a nondescript little dive bar a couple blocks west of mine, sandwiched between La Cantina Flora famous for its bottomless frozen margaritas, and Checker's Piano Bar, famous for jazz bands and 25-buck espresso martinis. The butterfly's wrist didn't have a theme of its own, just a red lamp over the door, tinted windows, and a dirty gray awning which displayed its name in faded white letters. The place was never busy, never advertised, no posters, not even a menu board out front and seemed to exist solely to catch spillover from the cooler, more interesting bars that surrounded it. It remained open for nine months total, from mid-2019 to early 2020. The bartenders at the Butterfly Wrist, if they even existed, never socialized with the rest of us. The place was just creepy. So, of course, again and again, we found ourselves talking about it. Cody said the bathroom there didn't even have electricity, Diego told the rest of us. He flicked his lighters so he could see what he was doing in there, and pitch black hands reached for him out of the mirror. Diego took a long sip of his maker's mark and water. He and Cody were both bartenders at Pedal, a little club on Vine, that hosted burlesque performances. I know Cody, said Stephanie, who danced at the Pink Cat. He microdoses. I'm 100% sure anything that comes out of his mouth is BS. I heard there's a basement, Gillen cut in. My manager told me they've got a sex dungeon down there. He's right, said Diego. They do the sickest crap you can't find other places. Pup play, girls who'll drug you and stick needles into your balls. Stephanie rolled her eyes. Sure. Yeah, there's not a lot of basements in California, I said. 
Not sure why a random bar would have one. They've got a backyard, Rebecca piped up. We all shut up and paid attention to Rebecca. She waited tables at La Contina Floor next door to the Butterfly's Wrist. The Butterfly Wrist is like half the size of Cantina, Rebecca continued. But the lots are identical, so there's this asphalt backyard behind the Butterfly Wrist. I think it's supposed to be for parking, but it's all walled in. I'll see guys go around the side of the building, then I hear a gate slam. So, something goes on back there. Paul, a cook at Checker's Piano Bar, nodded. Something with animals, dogs. A couple of times I heard dogs barking and going crazy. Didn't some dude die in that bar? Floyd asked. It was on the news. I think it was outside on the sidewalk. Two drunk tourists got into a fight. No, that was a different story, Floyd insisted. Some local rando, an accountant, I think, died inside the bar. He was shot. I heard he was poisoned. I met a guy who used to work there, said Matt. Again, we shut up and listened. Matt managed the bar at Stella's library. He'd never mentioned knowing a bartender from the butterfly's wrist before. It was a couple of months ago, Matt explained. Right after the butterfly wrist opened, young guy. His name was Grant. He used to buy cigs from the same liquor store. He told me they had a bartender wanted sign in the window, so he walked in, and what do you know? The owner was there. Middle-aged guy with a European accent. Grant said he lit up a cigarette right in front of him, but he also gave him the job. Is there a basement? Diego asked. Stephanie shook her head. Matt shrugged. If there was, Grant never saw it. He also never saw the owner again. No manager, no security, usually worked alone. And he told me he could have got away with anything. Underage kids, drinking on the job, whatever. He said no one there gave a crap what he did. Paul raised his glass. <laughs> Perfect gig. I doubt it, Matt said. Grant lasted three weeks. The tips were crap. The only customers the place attracted were weird loners or drunk frat boys who'd gotten thrown out of the other bars. But that wasn't all. Grant said the bar didn't feel right, like it just had some real twisted juju. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Now, I'd never actually been inside the butterfly's wrist. The dingy little bar became like wallpaper to me. I barely looked at it and I'd never been inspired to go inside and check out their tequila selection. 
Plenty of better, more welcoming places around for that. The day before Thanksgiving 2019, I found myself on the street parking on Cherokee. Hours later after work, I sat in the driver's seat and texted my wife Lucy. We were set to fly to Pittsburgh that night. My brother attended veterinary school in Pennsylvania. My mom decided we needed to bring Thanksgiving to him. Lucy texted back. She was tied up at the office and wouldn't be home for another hour. I stared up from my phone and right through the tinted windows of the butterfly's wrist. A homeless man, dirty and mumbling to himself, crossed the street in front of me. I leaned back and closed my eyes. I'd taken what I thought would be a dead slow afternoon shift. But as it turned out, a lot of people had come into town for the holiday... And those out-of-towners all needed a drink before a long weekend with their families. I opened my eyes and watched the front of the butterfly's wrist. Our flight didn't leave until one in the morning. I had time to kill. Back when I was a naive little lambling in college, I majored in journalism. I buried that career path years before, and the vanishing opportunities. Low pay, long hours, chasing stories around the country with it. But I'd kept the bordering on obsessive curiosity that had drawn me to journalism in the first place. That and my irrepressible urge to step closer to the edge of the cliff. With that last industry night conversation fresh in my mind, I decided to go for a drink at the Butterfly's Rest. A mechanical bell tinkled as I stepped through the door. The Butterfly's Rest looked like a stock photo labeled Crappy Drive. There were a few round black cocktail tables and high chairs, a pockmarked wooden bar top surrounded by red stools, a standard display of liquor, mid-range, nothing too flashy. One customer was sitting at the bar, one bartender behind it. An average bar, just like a million other bars in Los Angeles. Well, maybe not. I looked at the sole customer, blinked and looked again. Yep, it really was him. The homeless guy I'd just seen wandering across the street outside. Now he sat at the farthest stool from the door, sipping brown liquor, face obscured by stringing hair, and a filthy, oversized camouflage jacket. The bartender, a black girl who didn't look old enough to drink, wore a pink T-shirt and fuzzy pajama bottoms with little red hearts. When I'd walked in, she was pouring Baileys and butterscotch snaps into a rocks glass. I assumed the drink was for the homeless guy, but the bartender replaced the bottles and took a sip herself. I sat down on a stool. The bartender eyed me as though I were an overly friendly squirrel. Ah, uh, can I get a Coke, I asked. The girl nodded and wordlessly poured a can of Coke. My eyes were drawn to something on a shelf between bottles of Frangelico and Goldschlager. A small, bizarre porcelain figurine. A woman, all in white, with a blue skirt, arms raised in a ballerina pose, head cocked. She had no eyes or nose, just comically oversized pink lips. A third arm extended from her flank, and wings poked out of her back. The wings were thin, fragile and lavender, the texture of stained glass. I stared at the figurine... The bartender noticed me staring. She took another sip of a drink. It keeps me numb, she said, indicating her glass. I feel it less when I'm a little buzzed. 
The homeless man suddenly and violently slammed his fists in the counter. Stupid Obama, he screamed. Obama took my pension. I stiffened and jerked towards the door. The bartender didn't flinch. The pigs took my car, the man announced. They drugged me and I passed out and bam, pigs all over it, stealing all my clothes, throwing my food in the ground. I took a swig of my Coke. The sickly yellow hanging lights caught the ballerina's figurine's purple glass wing. My grip tightened on my can. Screw Pennsylvania, I thought. I'm about to give up a Black Friday shift and a weekend because my mom wants all her children together for Thanksgiving. Who cares that I have rent to pay and, you know, responsibilities at work? It's not like my job's serious or anything. They're jealous because of their limits. I'm gonna... I'm gonna make a billion dollars because my mind is limitless. I felt my heartbeat quicken, blood pounding in my temples. I mean, sure, it would make more sense for Kyle to come home for Thanksgiving. We all live in L.A., he's the only one out of town. But he can't because he's in veterinary school. So we've all got to go to him. Because he's the special little star. He's the good one. Mommy's favorite. And I'm the family screw-up. I got a brilliant idea. I can't tell you yet, but it's going to make me rich. Then I'm going to get back my car and my pension back. The bartender picked up the handle of the Baileys and poured a couple more shots into her cup. Thin aluminum crinkled in my grasp. I'm not going. I bet I could make a thousand bucks in tips over the weekend. Screw my family. Is my family going to give me a thousand bucks? I slapped my coke under the bar. Cold, fizzy droplets of soda flew into my face. Screw you, the homeless guy railed. The three-armed ballerina figurine pouted at me, taunting me with her puckered lips. I had to get out of there. I dropped a ten on the bar top, left my destroyed soda can, and ran back to my car. I threw myself into the driver's seat, I closed my eyes, and breathed. The virulent rage I'd felt seconds before, sitting by the bar at the butterfly's wrist, dissipated into nothing. I had no idea where the intense hostility had come from. I wanted to go to Pennsylvania. I wanted to spend Thanksgiving with my family, especially Kyle. I was proud of Kyle, and I definitely didn't mind crossing out on a few days' worth of tips if it meant we all got to be together. My phone chirped. Lucy. Back at our apartment, packed and ready to leave for the airport. I drove away. I never entered the butterfly's wrist again. Months after my one and only drink at the butterfly's wrist, coronavirus washed up stateside, and the state shut down. The bars shut down. Lucy and I holed up in our Koreatown apartment, her working from home, me baking sourdough, and bringing my lady coffee like a good little sugar baby I'd become. I collected unemployment. We didn't stay six feet apart. In June, Lucy came down with nausea and flu-like symptoms, freaked out, and hightailed it to the nearest drive through COVID testing center. She tested negative... We both quarantined for two weeks anyway. When that was done, I bought her the over-the-counter test we probably should have considered in the first place. That test came up positive. Lucy was pregnant. 
Those two pink lines accomplished what nearly a decade of my mother's nagging could never do. They ended my infinite gap year. It was time. I just turned 30. My Halloween t-shirt wearing Bruce Campbell quoting manic horror dream boy behind the bar stick was getting stale. Impending fatherhood became the impetus I'd needed to leave the late nights, heavy lifting and pukey drunk wrangling behind. I'd long since realized I had no desire to be a lawyer or a finance pro. Instead, I applied to graduate programs in special education and decided to attend San Luis Obispo. Lucy still worked remotely. We were both ready for a change of scenery. So we sublet our apartment and moved north. I lost touch with my Hollywood Boulevard bartending buddies. We still liked each other's photos on Instagram, but with classes and Lucy's prenatal appointments, I barely had time to scroll. I knew after COVID, not all the bars reopened. One that closed forever, the butterfly's wrist. We couldn't blame COVID for that one. It was a news item most people missed. In late February of 2020, with a viral pandemic closing quickly in on the West Coast, it had been easy to scroll right past the LA Times article about the Hollywood dive bar that burned down. I remember that morning, one of my last days of work before we shut down indefinitely. Flakes of ash settled on my windshield and a gray haze snaked around cars and trees and buildings. I had to pull a U-turn on Cherokee. Two giant LAFD trucks barricaded the intersection. Cop cars lined the block and the sidewalk was cordoned off with yellow police tape. I learned later the most suspicious of my bartender friends were right. The Butterfly's Wrist had a basement, accessible via trapdoor, out of which the petty Russian criminal owners ran an illegal gambling parlor and dogfighting rink. Side note, massively screw anyone who gauges in dogfighting. No lube. That night, a game of blackjack ended with one player. Let's say displeased with how things went down. A fight commenced, and that fight became a brawl, and that brawl moved upstairs, and in the metastasizing chaos, an electrical heater was knocked over, setting the wallpaper ablaze. Four patrons died, eight were hospitalized, at least five men were arrested, and the butterfly's wrist was a total loss. I looked online and found pictures of the wreckage, the charred and splintered bar top and exploded liquor bottles, I saw, I definitely saw, small bits of white porcelain littered across the floor and melted purple glass. Fall semester of 2021, my school reverted to in-person classes. That was a blessing. I enjoy sweatpants as much as the next guy, but as anyone who's ever taken care of a newborn can attest to, when you've got no reason to leave the apartment, that bubble gets pretty tight. Shaving is the first casualty, then bathing, and from there, it's a downward spiral to vermin-infested oblivion. My point is, I was grateful to return to campus, slide on pants with a zipper, and have conversations about anything besides breast milk. I like my cohort. Most of them were like me, late 20s or early 30s, working schlubs, some with kids, looking for career stability, after years spent being interesting. The most interesting out of all my classmates was a girl named Greta. She was about my age, and she worked as a ghost hunter. 
Not a ghost hunter like those douchebags with a cable reality show. The way Greta described it, she was more of a ghost therapist. She'd come in with her bag of crystals and sage and protection spells, make psychic contact with the spirit, and convince it to go into the bright white light. I asked her how much ghost hunting paid. She said she didn't do it for the money, and I translated that as ghost hunting doesn't pay jack. Greta and I weren't friends. Our relationship was limited to smiles and small talk. So I was surprised when a couple days before Thanksgiving break, she offered to pay for half my gas to L.A. if she could tag along. It sounded like a great deal to me. I planned on driving to my parents' house with Little Raven on Wednesday. Lucy had a huge project due for work and desperately needed a quiet night in our apartment alone. If Greta didn't mind sharing the back seat with the baby, I told her I'd take her as far as she wanted to go. Hollywood, she said. I have a job there. We set off the day before Thanksgiving. Greta came armed with strange luggage. A knapsack, a rolled-up sleeping bag, and an incredibly creepy plaster figurine in the shape of an old-time jockey. The doll was bigger than Raven, and it looked older than Greta and me. It was made of thick plastic, a little boy with a massively oversized head, a blue jacket and ball cap, pants that had once been white, and boots that had once been black. The color in its eyes had washed out, leaving empty white circles. Feather, like mildew stains, covered its blue jacket and discolored skin. I raised my eyebrows at the jockey boy. Greta didn't offer an explanation, but she shoved the disturbing thing under the seat and covered it with her hoodie. The first two hours of the three-hour drive were quiet. Raven slept in her car seat. Greta and I stared out our respective windows and appreciated the scenery. My GPS routed me toward the address Greta had scrawled on a Starbucks receipt. As we pulled through Agora Hills, the stench of a dairy fart permeated the car. I switched lanes for the next exit. Sorry, I said to Greta. Someone needs a diaper change. I pulled into a Target parking lot, grabbed my diaper bag, and maneuvered a now-whimpering raven into her baby bjorn. As I velcroed and strapped, I saw Greta undo her seatbelt and climb out of the car. You can wait here if you want, I told her. I'll just be a few minutes. Greta shrugged. It's fine. I need to get some stuff anyways. I made a pit stop in the family restroom with Raven and picked out a cheap bottle of red wine to take to my parents' house. I met up with Greta in the checkout line. She'd chosen two items of her own, a spiral notebook and a pack of pens. A writing instrument and writing paper. Seemed like odd equipment for ghost hunting. In the car, back on the 101, I indulged my curiosity. This job in Hollywood, I asked Greta. What is it? Like, what sort of spirit are you exercising? Murder-suicide? Little Victorian girl? Bruce Willis and... Who doesn't know he's dead? Greta smiled. That reference is like 20 years old, dude. Her smile faded. Actually, I don't know what exactly I'm doing. Well, who hired you? She scrunched her face. A guy. uh, Said his name was Tim. Our age, maybe, wearing a suit. He just emailed me out of the blue and asked to meet at Starbucks. What'd he say? I pressed. Did Tim the suit inherit a haunted house? 
Greta looked uncomfortable, like she didn't want to be having this conversation. A haunted business, I think. Tim said he was working on behalf of a client. He didn't really specify. He gave me $10,000. That shut me up. $10,000, she continued. And he promised me another ten grand when the job's done. I've never made so much money in my life. Yeah, I warned. But that's what sex workers say right before they drive out of the boonies to meet the serial killer. That's not like that, Greta snapped. I didn't respond. I got the impression she was trying to convince herself more than me. She sighed. Okay, fine. It's kind of unsettling. I'm supposed to go to this abandoned building and spend the night. Tim said I can do whatever I want to do. Smudging, crystal work, wicca so long as I follow two rules. One, every hour, I need to write a diary entry in the notebook. And two, I have to bring an old-fashioned lawn jockey. Hence, boy Annabelle, I indicated the creepy figurine under the seat. She nodded. Yeah, I found him in my grandmother's garage. Greta's ghost-hunting gig sounded like how to end up on a true crime podcast 101. But she was an adult and she swore she was a professional and, well, had nothing to offer to compete with 20 grand, so I kept on driving. I got off the 101 at Coenga, turned on to Hollywood Boulevard and stopped at the address Greta had given me. Then I realized what that address actually was. The burned-out husk between La Cantina Flora and Checker's Piano Bar. The abandoned wreck that had once been the butterfly's wrist. Numbing cold trickled down my spine and my arms and my legs. My fingers tingled. I felt a warning surge of adrenaline curdle in my veins. I remembered that night two years before I'd sat on a bar stool, staring at that disturbing ballerina figure with three arms and purple wings. Hulk smashing a Coke can while seething in anger. I turned to Greta, who was gathering her sleeping bag and lawn jockey. Uh, listen, I started. I, uh, I used to work around here. This place is weird. I finished weakly. Greta smiled reassuringly. Serious? I've slept in a house where her father murdered his whole family. I'll be fine. I couldn't think of anything else to say. I didn't think a few ghostly gamblers dead in a brawl would deter Greta. That sounded more folksy than bone-chilling. And I still don't know how to put into words what I'd felt that night. How the butterfly's wrist had invaded my thoughts, twisting and warping them into something grotesque. So I told her to call me if she needed anything and wished her luck. I watched her open the padlock door with a key and disappear behind the tinted windows. Initially, Greta seemed fine. I texted her Thanksgiving morning. She responded with, Job went fine. Brother picked me up. Cool. She returned to class with the rest of us the following Tuesday. Her hand was bandaged, but other than that, she appeared no worse for wear. I didn't get the impression she was intentionally ignoring me, but she also made no effort to follow up on our conversation in the car, and I didn't push it. I hadn't seen the butterfly's wrist in two years. Bartending on Hollywood Boulevard felt like a distant fever dream, and I'd realized I harbored no desire to relive that part of my life. 
Christmas came and passed. Final semester began. I swirled and twisted in a hurricane of research papers and projects and certificates and student teaching, and then I was graduating. We relocated back to Los Angeles. Lucy got promoted. I found a job at an elementary school in Silmar. Raven said her first words and took her first steps. We discussed a down payment on a house and another baby. If I heard or read about remodeling, rebuilding, and or reopening of Angel City Racetrack, I immediately memory-hold that information. Then two weeks ago, Greta called. She needed to talk. I met Greta at a Starbucks in Santa Clarita. She said she'd come to me, but it felt terrible making her fight 101 traffic deep into the valley. She'd already driven six hours south from the North Bay. I'd no idea what was so important she just couldn't tell me over the phone, let alone hike halfway across the state. Greta hadn't changed much since graduation. We made small talk for a while. She liked her job at a middle school in Santa Rosa. I liked mine with LAUSD. Finally, I stepped down from my coffee cup, leaned back in my metal chair, and straight up told her I doubted she'd come all that way to compare notes on IEPs. She took a deep breath. You remember that place in Hollywood, right? The one you drove to on Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. I nodded. The hairs in the back of my neck quivered, but didn't stand on end. Do you remember that lawn jockey I brought? And uh, the guy in the suit? Tim? The rules? I think... Uh, what do you know about that place? The bar? Because something went into the statue, and they took it out, and... Uh, you're not making sense, I cut in. Yeah, I remember that creepy little jockey. What about it? She sighed. She tapped at her phone and handed it to me. I stared at a news article about the Angel City racetrack. A horse racing establishment some rich investors were, unwisely in my opinion, remodeling in Hollywood. It included photos of the new and improved track, grandstand, clubhouse, and grounds. A paved little road led to a betting parlor lined with mismatched lawn jockeys. The closest jockey boy figurine to the camera had a mildewed stained blue jacket, oversized head with fading white eyes, a hairline crack across its cheek, and a jagged hole where its nose should have been. That's it, Greta exclaimed. That's the lawn jockey I took to that burned-out bar in Hollywood. An uncomfortable, warm unease crisscrossed my chest. But objectively, it was a ridiculous thing for Greta to say. Dude, I am sure there's a million plastic jockeys like that, I told her, shaking my head. No, it's the same one. I'm sure about it. The nose, the crack. She fell silent, cocked her head. I never told you what happened to me in that place, did I? She hadn't. She said they'd swept the ashes and broken glass out of the butterfly's wrist, cleared the broken furniture. Other than that, though, the place had barely been touched since the night of the fire. It was empty, save charged walls and a splintered, blackened bar top. Greta had spent the night in dirtier places. She unrolled her sleeping bag, placed the jockey figurine on the bar top, and drew her personal protection circle with black salt and lavender oil. 
She smudged with sage. She put crystal displays at the four corners of both the bar and the empty moldy basement below it. She set up a Buddhist Native American cultural appropriation altar. Every hour, as promised, uh, to Tim the suit, she wrote a diary entry in her spiral notebook. She meditated, read her tarot cards, and smudged again before curling up and falling asleep. The little girl woke her around two in the morning. She was about ten years old, with short curly brown hair and a knit-collared button-down dress. Greta immediately recognized the girl as a spirit because the cooked white rice she placed at her altar shrilled up and turned black. But Greta wasn't afraid. She smiled kindly at the ghost girl and asked her her name. Justina. Justina Mazur, who died in 1943. Her father operated a small grocery store in that very spot, the place that would one day become the butterfly's wrist. Their little two-person family lived in an apartment above the grocery store. Her father saved his money. He didn't trust banks, so he kept it in a bag. He saved and saved. He intended to use his accumulated fortune to bring his brothers and their families to California from Nazi-occupied Poland. But a group of greedy men heard about Justina's father and the bag of money he supposedly kept hidden somewhere in his business. One night, they forced their way into the store and upstairs to the apartment. They grabbed Justina from her bed and put a gun to her head. If her father didn't hand over the loot, they threatened to kill her. Then the gun went off accidentally. Justina crumpled to the ground. Her father, overcome with grief, lunged at the men and wrestled the gun away from them. He declared they'd never find the treasure they sought. Then he fired a bullet into his own temple. Greta should have kept talking to the girl, she admitted. She would have led her toward that bright white light, guided her to eternity. But she didn't, because all she could think about was that big bag of money. She intended to find it for herself. In the backyard, she found a shovel and a sharp brick. She tore apart the walls, pulling off charred wood and digging through the foamy insulation. She pried up the floorboards... She beat holes into the walls of the basement and jammed the shovel into the ground until it shattered. It's all my father's fault, she thought. He died of cancer when Greta was nine and left the family with nothing. My mother's a worthless idiot. Her mother had wasted what little money they did have on alcohol, cigarettes, and falling for a pyramid scheme. I'll show my brother. When I find that money, I won't share with him. Revenge for how he sold our mom's house and took all the money to start his dental practice. He's never even offered to help me pay for grad school. She tore and bashed and destroyed. Her muscles ached and her fingers bled, but she didn't care. My friends are all broke, stupid idiots. I'm paying too much money for that lousy school. I know my landlord is going to make up lies to keep my deposit. The money will be mine and I'm going to laugh at all of them. Tim, the suit, arrived at eight o'clock. He found Greta in the basement, sifting through shards of shattered concrete flooring. Greta regained enough control over herself to feel embarrassed. Hours earlier, in a fit of rage, she tossed the lawn jockey at a wall, cracking its cheek and breaking off its nose. 
She kept to the rules she'd written in the spiral notebook once per hour, but her letter entries were chicken-scratch grievances against her family, friends, and classmates, then an unhinged list of all the things she'd buy once she found that money. Tim, however, appeared quite pleased. He thanked Greta, handed her a fat envelope, and asked if she needed him to call her a cab home. Greta sat on the curb across the street and waited for her brother to pick her up. One rest had ballooned and turned red, bits of char, and insulation stuck to her hair. She was sweaty and filthy and smelled like a must and fire, and her fingers were shredded and oozing and covered in splinters. But what bothered her most was the dark, obsessive hole she'd fallen into. She couldn't understand. Outside the burned-out bar, in the bright morning sun, those overwhelming feelings of greed and anger and vengeance seemed alien. Not like that, she insisted. I don't make decisions for money. I'm a teacher, for God's sakes. I know what you mean, I said. I remembered the night that I'd sat in the butterfly's wrist, sipping a Coke. I felt what she felt, the fury over losing out on a couple nights' tips, the rush of ultra-competitiveness, the resentment toward my mom and my brother Kyle. I recalled the stories I'd heard, all the deaths, rumored and confirmed. I did some research, Greta continued. There was never a grocery store there, and I couldn't find a record of any child named Justina Major dying by gunshot. But I don't think that's the point. I didn't think so either. I knew exactly what Greta was trying to say. I believed what Greta was trying to say. I just couldn't put it into words myself. A spirit lived there, she said. I think the spirit inspires greed and anger and the need to win. I think I was sent there as a canary or a guinea pig. I was supposed to rile up the spirits and prove to whoever it was who hired me that the spirit worked as advertised. And I think I trapped the spirit in the lawn jockey. I recalled another detail about the butterfly's wrist. The figurine above the bar. A porcelain dancing girl with three arms, purple wings, and pouting lips. Smashed to bits the night of the fire. You made the spirit possible, I said to Greta. Whoever paid you, they bought themselves a haunting to go. Greed, obsession, and hyper-competitiveness. Desirable traits for customers who are running an illegal casino or a racetrack. I did some research into the 2020 fire at the Butterfly's Wrist. Four men died that night. One was found in the basement, lying in a pit of his own vomit, eyes bulging and lips blue. He'd been poisoned with cyanide. The second had been stabbed through both eyes with glass from two separate beer bottles. The third's come to a traumatic brain injury on the floor of the bar. A fourth man beat him to death with his fists. He kept on punching after the victim stopped moving, when his knuckles embedded into brain matter as the bar filled with black smoke. He'd punched until he keeled over and died. The butterfly's wrist was only open for nine months, yet at least six other deaths could be tied to it. Two tourists from Arizona who'd mortally injured each other and bled out on the sidewalk 
A bartender shot an accountant in the face after the customer accused him of watering down the vodka. Three TV crewbies, out for a quick beer after work, were admitted to the hospital with hair loss, vomiting, and chest pain a week later. Within six months, all were dead. Thallium poisoning. It was suspected, but never proved. They'd been dosed by jealous co-workers at the Butterfly's Rest Bar. I obsessively googled the Angel City racetrack. The inaugural race is scheduled for December 26th. The project was funded by a nesting doll series of shell corporations, creating a paper trail impossible to disentangle. Greta and I agreed there wasn't much we could do. What were our options? Call the police? Report a greed ghost masquerading as a little girl trapped in a moldy old lawn jockey on Angel City racetrack grounds? Well, I need another option. Desperately. Because my brother Kyle, the veterinary resident, called last week. He's been offered the coolest opportunity ever. A chance to look after the horses at the Angel City racetrack. Better yet, he got our whole family tickets for opening day. Lucy's excited, and Raven can't wait to see the ponies. I hope you enjoyed The Lawn Jockey and The Butterfly's Wrist by Nikki Exposito, as performed by yours truly. If you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured author can be found by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Nicole-Exposito. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash N-I-C-O-L-E-E-X-P-O-S-I-T-O. Be sure to check out the Burned Photo Podcast and don't forget to stop by for a visit on Reddit as well at Nikki underscore XX. Thanks again for your support of this program and tonight's featured author. Now, before we go, I'd also like to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. 
Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.